We're actually going to spend uh, two weeks on these two verses because they are uh, very important and very rich verses. And so Christy will come up and read for us 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 in a moment. Uh, now, what this verse really centers on, First Peter 2, 9, what it centers on is this idea that we've been called out of darkness and into light. And so I just wanted us to read three other passages from the New Testament this morning that speak to this reality that we've been called out of darkness and into light. All these passages just highlight the before and the after of the Christian life, so to speak, what we were when we were in darkness and how even though we were in darkness, God came and shown his mercy on us and now we have come to the light. And the New Testament just has many beautiful ways of portraying this. And so my prayer is that if this has been your experience already, would it wash over you anew this morning? If this has not been your experience yet, then I pray that you would receive this as your experience even now as we read these words and as I proclaim this word. Uh, so Sarah will come and read for us Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. And Moira will come, read for us Galatians 4, 1 to 7. And then lastly, Nicholas will come and read for us Titus 3, 3 to 8. Uh, so, Christy, if you want to come on up now and begin our reading. First Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Ephesians 2, 1-9 And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Galatians 4, 1-7 I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Titus 3, 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. So if you don't have uh, your Bibles open to 1 Peter yet, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. As I mentioned, we're going to take uh, two weeks on these verses, and that's because there's really two big things that I think these verses emphasize. The first big thing that these verses emphasize, and what we're going to look at this morning, is just what salvation is, the work of salvation that God has done. Again, verse 9 says that we have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then as verse 10 goes on to say, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in saying these things, Peter is reminding us, reminding us of this amazing work of redemption that God has done. And so I want to spend one week just focusing on that. How glorious is this work? How should it affect us to consider this great work of redemption that God has done? And yet, interestingly, the main point of these verses is not just to talk about our redemption. The main purpose of these verses is actually to tell us that we are now part of a church. Starting all the way back in 1 verse 22, he talks about the brotherly love that we're supposed to have for one another, how we've become one people in Jesus Christ. And so now these two verses, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, are really closing this argument that Peter is making, that we are not just these isolated individuals that have been redeemed by God, but rather we have been redeemed so that we will become part of a people. And that's the significance of these metaphors that Peter uses, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people, right? These are all collective plurals, right? People who have come together in one thing, and that's what happened to us when we were saved. So that's what we're going to look at next week, is what's the significance of the fact that in our salvation, we have been joined to a larger people. We haven't just been saved individually, even though, of course, we have been, and that's amazingly true, and that's more or less what we'll look at this morning. But in this salvation, we've also been made part of this greater work, part of this bigger race, nation, priesthood. And so we're going to talk about those ideas more next week. So, Again, uh, this week we want to look at the great redemption that God has worked. So if you look at verse 9 of 1 Peter 2, notice that very first word that's there, the word but. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now you probably noticed in some of those other passages that we read, there are these statements of but you are now. And that's because the reality is that what we are now, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, is in no reason owing to what we were before. There is no organic connection between who we were before we came to know Christ and what we are now after we came to Christ. It is not a natural transition. It's not like we slowly came to understand Jesus more and more, and at some point we kind of like tipped over this line, and then we really knew who Jesus was. No, the reality is that before we came to know Jesus, we were running away from God, we were rebelling against God, and then after we came to know Jesus, we positively loved God. There was a hard break, and that's why but is the first word here. 
Because you can't say that what came before is like what came after, or what came after came after because of what came before. No, what we are now, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, flies in the face of everything that you were before. You can see that very clearly, even just coming to the end of verse 8. It's talking about those who are opposed to God. It said, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Again, beloved, that's all of us. That is every human being before God intervenes in their life and saves them. We disobey the word. We stumble over Jesus. We don't trust in him as a great savior. We stumble over him. And we disobey God. And so verse 9 begins with this idea, but you are a royal priesthood. So in spite of what you were, in spite of your disobedience, in spite of your rejection of God, God has chosen you. You are a chosen race. He has made you a royal priest, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These verses also highlight a little more for us about what we were before we came to know Jesus Christ. The first and perhaps biggest idea that this verse uses is verse 9, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now what's the significance of saying this word darkness? What does it mean that we were in darkness before we came to the light of Jesus Christ? I mean, clearly it doesn't mean that in a literal way, right? It's not like we were uh, in nighttime all the time and then all of a sudden we had daytime when he came to Jesus. We could see physical light, right? We would wake up in the morning, we'd go to sleep at night. But what has changed is that our hearts have been been made able to see. See what is truly beautiful. See what is truly good. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. Before we came to Jesus Christ, when we were still walking in disobedience, we could not see the light of the world. We could not see the brightest, most glorious light in all of existence. We were blind to it. We were in darkness. God is light. The Psalms say that God is light, and in his light, we see light. Light is one of the most consistent metaphors in all of Scripture for the being of God and for nearness to God, and that is because in God, we gain every kind of clarity. We gain mental, intellectual clarity. We can finally understand why the world came to be and how it's all ordered in light of giving glory to God, so we gain that kind of clarity. We gain emotional clarity in the sense that we can see how sin oppresses us and makes us feel dark within and how God being the light of the world makes us feel light and pure and clean. So we gain emotional clarity. We gain spiritual clarity. We're able to see what is truly good, what is truly evil. We're able to see that God himself is the only perfectly pure being in all of existence. And we're able to see more clearly the forces that are arrayed against him in spiritual places and in the human creation itself. And so we gain all of these types of clarity. We gain all this light when we come to Jesus. And indeed, the more we come to Jesus, the closer we come to God, the more light we receive, the more the world makes sense, the more we see clearly good and evil, the more our own hearts are lifted out of emotional heaviness and dirtiness, and the more we experience joy and life. 
We are truly called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. G.K. Chesterton has this great phrase that says, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They become capable of believing in anything. What he's saying is that when we don't know God, when we can't see God clearly, it's not like then we're somehow rational skeptics, you know, able to see the world clearly with, uh, with clear eyes, with rational perception. No, rather we become gullible. We start to believe in anything because God himself is not the center because we don't have the light of the world. We are susceptible to believing the craziest things, the craziest lies. We are living in darkness. And so when God calls us out of darkness, he calls us into his marvelous light. So that's the first before and after state that we see in this passage, from darkness to light. The next before and after statement we see is in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Before we came to Jesus Christ, we were essentially isolated. We had no community. We had no family. We had no identity. We were kind of wandering about, trying to figure out who we really are. Where do we really belong? This problem is very severe in the modern world in particular, especially in modern America. We in America have always been a nation of people who are go-getters, right? People who like to rise up through the social classes, people who will move anywhere to take a job and will do whatever it takes to get ahead. And as a result, we Americans in particular struggle with having a sense of identity. We think that we have to invent who we are. Indeed, it's a very American notion that we kind of see this array of identities on the shelf and we just kind of pick and choose, okay, who do I want to be? Do I want to be the successful businessman? Do I want to be the loving family man? Who do I want to be? I'm going to pick and then I'm going to go after that thing and that's who I'm going to be. For most of human history, it wasn't this way. For most of human history, if you were born in a community, if your dad was a farmer, as most human beings were for most of human history, if your dad was a farmer and you were born, well, you knew when you grew up you were going to be a farmer. You knew where you were going to be a farmer. You are going to be a farmer right there on that piece of land where you were born. For most of human history, people didn't travel more than 30 miles away from wherever their hometown was, right? They didn't have vehicles. They didn't have airplanes. And along with that came the strong sense of identity which wasn't always healthy, right? Because human cultures are fallen. Human cultures are messed up. And so people had these tribal or very local identities where it was us versus the world. And they were so connected with their own homeland, their own home turf, that they would battle anyone who threatened their own farm, their own family. And that was where they got their sense of identity. That was where they got their sense of meaning. And so many people would say, well, now that we're in the modern world, we've been kind of liberated from this very localized sense of identity. Again, now we can choose whoever we want to be, and we can see the world. We can even immigrate to a different country and become a different nationality if we want to be. You know, you can be whoever you want to be. You just you just got to go after it. And so we think that that is some kind of liberation. But instead of that being liberation, what the modern world has actually shown is that that is actually oppression itself. It puts this weight on us to figure out all about who we want to be, what are we going to go after, where do we want to live, how much money are we going to make, all of these things, that it's led to this huge increase in the sense of loneliness, the sense of isolation. 
We humans were not made to create our own identity, to choose who we wanted to be in isolation of any kind of nation or family or place or locality or anything else. But what Scripture does is Scripture doesn't come to us and say, okay, well, go back to the old days where your family, where your farm, where your nation was your sense of identity. No. What does 1 Peter 2.10 says? It says, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. The New Testament is telling us, find your identity here. Find your meaning here. Do you want to know who you ought to be? Do you want to know what identity you ought to put on? Do you want to know how you should live, what your traditions are, what your culture is? Find that in the people of God. Find that in the call of God himself, in the gospel call that Jesus himself has come and lived for you and died for you and risen again for you such that your life is now an imitation, a mirror of his life. So that in your life, you're living in his crucifixion death and you're living in his resurrection power. You are putting to death all the deeds of the flesh by the power of the cross. And you are living out of the fullness of the spirit of life by the power of Jesus' resurrection. This is the fullest identity that you need. There is no question in your life that you need answered that cannot be answered by recourse to this word right here to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been made a people. We have been given an identity. No longer are we lonely and isolated. We have answers for our questions. We have solid ground to stand on. We are not rootless, wandering about, trying to figure out what life is all about and who we want to be. No, all of the most important answers are given to us in God's word. All the most important identities are given to us by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that this fact that we were not a people, but now we are God's people, is not something that we did for ourselves. It is not an identity that we worked and chipped away at, and eventually we got there. We got to be God's people. No, again, we were rebels. We were lost. We were disobedient. And then God, one day, in his mercy, said, I want you for my child. And he made us his child, and then we had a people. Apart from anything that we did, but just by receiving this identity that Jesus Christ has won for us. And so we have this by faith, by grace. And we don't have to wrestle with all the questions and all the loneliness and all the pressure that the world puts on us to choose our own identity, to choose who we want to be. No, we can receive by faith what Jesus has won for us. The last before and after statement that we see in these verses, again, in verse 10, once you were not a people, now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's both an objective element to this and there is a subjective element to this. So we have received mercy in the sense that we are no longer under God's judgment. This is the objective reality. Maybe you don't feel this morning like you have received God's mercy. But if you have looked at the cross of Jesus Christ, and if you have owned that Jesus indeed died for you, that he rose from the dead for you, and that he is now living and reigning at the Father's right hand, If you truly believe that, if you're truly living out of that reality, then you have received mercy, beloved. 
Your conscience may be condemning you for something, but you need to look to the cross of Jesus Christ and you need to say, there I have found mercy. When it comes to the judgment day, you will not be condemned. On the cross of Jesus Christ, all of your sins were crucified with him and taken to the grave forever and ever, and your sins are now separated from you as far as the east is from the west. And so you have received mercy. You are not under God's judgment. The world, those who are rebels against God's will, they are walking toward that judgment day right now under God's wrath. They have not received mercy. But if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have received mercy, beloved. You will be declared innocent on that last day. You will be declared righteous on that last day on the merit of Jesus Christ alone because you have looked to him in faith. But there is also a subjective element to this. God doesn't want you to simply believe that mercy is out there and that it's yours, but then you walk around with a guilty conscience day to day, feeling like you're under the condemnation of some harsh heavenly father. No, the fact that you have been shown mercy is meant to be felt and experienced in your heart today. Again, beloved, is there some sin that is weighing you down? Is there something that you feel like you've done that God could just never forgive you for? And when you think of God the Father, you just see a big frowning face as if he's angry with you even now? Beloved, that is not the gospel life. That is not what Jesus died and rose again in order to win for you. He died and rose again so that you would know that every last sin that you committed has been hung upon that tree and taken to the grave forever. He died so that you would know today that you can run to your loving Heavenly Father even in the midst of your sinfulness and you can receive mercy, you can receive a welcome, you can receive an embrace. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we remain in our sin and we enjoy our sin far from it, right? We want to be in the arms of our Heavenly Father. We don't want to be in the arms of some idol or some sin that only seeks to destroy us and break us down. But what it means is when you find yourself in that place, when you find yourself in the place of darkness, in the place of sin, in the place of rebellion, you don't need to wait to run to your Heavenly Father. You don't need to clean yourself up first and then go into His presence. You have been shown mercy. Jesus Christ has shown you mercy. So just go to the Father now. Go to Him now and He will welcome you with open arms. He will give you freedom from that, that which seeks to destroy you. Freedom from your sin. So this passage tells us that we were in darkness. We were not a people. We had not received mercy. But now we are a people. We have received mercy. We are coming into the glorious light of God. And what is the result of this? What do we get instead of our ashes? What do we get instead of our death? Instead of our isolation and darkness? Look at the first phrase of verse 9. It's just remarkable, is it not? You are a chosen race, (laughs) a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Beloved, can you believe the staggering gift that God has given us? Can you believe it? I mean, if God were simply to just like wipe the slate clean, right? If he were simply to say, you know what? I won't count your sins against you. I guess you're okay. 
I mean, that itself would be an amazing gift, right? To just have a blank slate, you know, to, to just be counted not so bad in God's eyes, you know, even though we really are bad and terrible people. If God would just say, ah, I'll put up with you, I guess, <laughs> that, that would be wonderful. But look at the gift that God gives us instead. He makes us not just a blank slate, no, not just people whom he'll put up with. No, he makes us his chosen race. He makes us a royal priesthood, right? Not even just a priesthood, not even just royalty, but a royal priesthood. He makes us a holy nation and a people for his own possession. This is wonder upon wonders, beloved. God has given you in Jesus Christ the most exalted status you could ever imagine. Indeed, these words, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for his own possession, refer first and foremost to Jesus Christ and his identity itself. Jesus Christ is the great high priest, right? And he is the king of kings. So he is the preeminent one among this royal priesthood. But guess what? God has made us also royal priests, right? So this identity that Jesus has, he now says, you have it too. You have my identity. This great status that I have through my obedient death and resurrection, I now give to you. You yourselves are a royal priesthood. This idea that we are a people for his own possession. Who is a people more for God's own possession than Jesus Christ, who is one with the Father from all eternity past? This idea of being a people for his own possession speaks to a marriage sort of relationship. Remember, Scripture tells us that when we're talking about a husband and wife, that a husband belongs to his wife and a wife belongs to her husband. There is this mutual possession that a husband and wife have for each other. And God is saying, you are a people for my own possession. Jesus is saying, just as I am one with the Father and have this relationship with the Father that's really even more intimate than a marriage relationship, he's now saying, I welcome you into this welcome of the Father. You can be that united with him. You can be that one with him. You can be a people for God's own possession. He also says that we are a chosen race and a holy nation. This as a fulfillment of all of the Old Testament story, right? That God had chosen Israel out of all the nations on the earth to be his people. And just think of how he safeguarded that people of Israel through so many trials and tribulations and rebellions. All the way from exile down in Egypt up to the promised land, taking over the promised land, rebelling against him in so many ways, and yet God pursuing his people over and over and over. And God is now saying, you, church, you who believe in Jesus Christ, you are now my people. I will now protect you and watch over you in the way that I watched over them. And so all the hopes that we could possibly have, the the greatest identity we could possibly want, the greatest gift we could possibly receive has been given to us through no merit of our own. Has been given to us in spite of the fact that we were rebels and disobedient and hated God. God said, I love you still. I choose you still. I give you this identity, this royal priesthood, this being a people for my own possession. And you will be mine. 
And again, beloved, we receive this by faith. You receive this by faith. Don't have any thought in your mind this morning that this is something that I must work toward. This is something that I must earn. This is something that I must deserve. If you are thinking that, then your pride is speaking to you and your pride is lying to you. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. You must receive it as a gift. And So simply turn and receive it, beloved. Receive the wonder, the wonder of this fourfold blessing that God speaks over us, that he makes us his people, that he makes us this royal priesthood. And do you know what happens when we receive that? Do you know what happens when we see the great guilt that we had, the desperate state that we were in, and when we see this amazing wonder that God has called us to? You know what happens? We become a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, this is what all of this is engineered to do. This is why God gives us this great gift by faith. He does this so that we will proclaim his excellencies, so that we will worship him, so that we will glorify him. And this response of glorifying God, of proclaiming his excellencies, this response is just the natural response of understanding the redemption that Jesus Christ has won for you. And the more you understand grace, the more you understand the mercy that you have been shown, the more you will want to praise God. The more you will want to proclaim his excellencies. It is as natural as one plus one equaling two. If you don't have any impulse to praise God in light of the fact that he has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, then you have not understood that he has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But as soon as you understand that, you're like, oh my goodness, Lord, I want to praise you. I want to worship you forever. That you would call me into this, out of that. That's just amazing. And so we become a people who were given to the praise of God, who are given to proclaiming God's excellencies. And we want to proclaim them everywhere, right? Don't, don't think this is just a matter of church on Sunday morning. This isn't just a matter of, you know, coming in and we sing six, five or six songs together. Okay, now I've proclaimed God's excellencies this week. I'm so glad I got to do that. No, you can proclaim God's excellencies in literally every moment of your day. Every moment of your day, you can ask yourself the question, okay, in this moment, am I showing that God is greater than any earthly thing? Or am I showing that this earthly thing is actually better than God? In other words, am I running away from God in what I'm doing in this moment, or am I running towards him? Beloved, you can do the most menial tasks to the praise and glory of God. You can wash the dishes to the praise and glory of God. You can do the laundry to the praise and glory of God. You can do anything to the praise and glory of God if you're doing it with this heart of worship, if you're doing it under his will, under his commands. You know, husbands, if you have kids and so you're celebrating your, your wife, the mother of your children today on Mother's Day, I hope that today you will do some dishes to the glory of God. I hope you will do some laundry to the glory of God, right? You will do it to the glory of God if you do it out of love for your wife as God has commanded you. 
if you are obeying God and loving your wife and therefore you're serving her in this way today, that would give God great glory. That would be telling the world, you know what? My God and his ways are better than the ways of the world which are selfish and self-centered. I'm not going to live selfish and self-centered. I'm going to live for God. So I'm going to lay down my desire to just sit down and click on the TV and I am going to serve my wife because God has told me to and I want to serve God. Right? That's how we can do even menial, mundane tasks to the praise and the glory of God. Now, when we look at this reality that God has saved us, he has given us this redemption to proclaim his excellencies, there is a big objection here that maybe you haven't consciously stated this, but I believe that if you're a modern American, if, well, actually, if you're just a sinful human being, I believe this objection is in your mind. And this objection is this. You say, what? God saved me so that I would praise him? God saved me so that I could praise him? Your heart will want to say, no, I thought this was all about me. I thought, God, I thought you just loved me. You wanted to make me feel good. And so that's why you saved me. If you're just saving me so that I'll praise you, doesn't that make you selfish? Doesn't it make you self-centered? You know, why don't, why don't you do this all for me? Why do you make me all about you? Right? This idea that our life, that our redemption itself is supposed to be centered on God is abhorrent to the world today. The world today, I think especially in modern America, is all about me, right? Praise me, affirm me, do everything you can to please me. And so when we hear that God has done this so that we'll praise him, our natural instinct, our sinful instinct is to just reject God as being a moral monster, right? That if you're not going to love me more than anything else, if you're not going to serve me more than anything else, why should I want anything to do with you? You're supposed to affirm me, not the other way around. But this tells us that our salvation is indeed that we would give praise to God, that our lives would stop being self-centered and would instead become God-centered. Some may accuse us of being, you know, radicals or theocratic or something like that, but we cannot shy away from this reality. We must own it. We must say, yes, we believe that our life and every human life is supposed to be ordered to the praise of God. We don't believe that we can take God and make him all about affirming you. You must change in order to praise God. This is just a basic truth of the Christian faith that, again, the world will hate, but we have to stand firm on it. But let's not just understand this in opposition to the world. Let's understand this as a command, as an imperative to us ourselves. Our salvation is supposed to result in praise and glory to God. We are supposed to worship God as a result of our salvation. And so again, I exhort you, I implore you to take every moment of your life captive to this command. Ask yourself if all of your life is being lived to show that God is great to the praise and glory and honor of God, or are you telling God that, you know, you'll give him 50% of your time, but you need about 50% to yourself? We must make all of our lives, if we have received so great a salvation, if God has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves and has given us an inheritance that we could never have won for ourselves, if God has done this for us, we must make all of our lives about 
the praise and glory and honor of God. But beloved, the remarkable thing, when we do that, when we make all of our lives about the praise and glory and honor of God, is that our lives do not suddenly then become drudgery. We don't then suddenly feel worthless or unacknowledged. No, this is precisely what we were created for. This is precisely where human joy comes to its pinnacle. You see, God, in saying that we must be God-centered, God, in saying that you must abandon yourself and you must come and worship me, he's not saying that therefore you must be miserable all the time. You must be unhappy all the time. No, precisely the opposite, beloved. He's saying, if you just want everything to affirm you, if you want everything about yourself, you will actually be miserable in the end. Again, think of just this weight we have in modern America of trying to choose our own identity, you know, all the way down to choosing our own gender, right? All these decisions that people make, it doesn't make you happier. It makes you more crushed. It makes you more weighed down. And so God, when he is saying, abandon yourself, abandon all this thought of serving yourself in every way, affirming yourself in every way, and instead just pursue me, just run to me, just worship me, he is actually calling us to a life of joy and happiness. Again, just consider these words of verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies, beloved, We are not praising a dreary God, praising a boring God, praising a black and white, gray kind of God. No, we are praising a God full of excellencies, full of wonder. I still remember when I was in middle school, the first time, it probably wasn't the first time, so I don't know why I remember this, but I remember the first time I saw an arcade in a shopping mall. I was just like walking by outside the arcade and all of a sudden, I'm sure you've all had this experience, when you walk by the arcade, just this like blare of noise like just starts hitting you, right? And there's even like this smell of fried food. There's all these flashing lights, you know, going on like all different colors. It's just like madness. And being in middle school, I was like drawn to this arcade like a moth to a flame, right? So I'm like, what is this place, you know? And so I I walk in to this arcade, and because I don't remember being in one before, it was just so overwhelming. I remember feeling like I just want to kind of like curl up in the fetal position on the floor of the arcade right there, just because I can't handle, you know, the noise and the lights and the smell and everything else. It was just, you know, totally overwhelming to me. Beloved, God himself, in his character, is about a trillion, trillion, trillion times more overwhelming, more amazing than an arcade in a shopping mall. If I have such a feeling, such an experience of being so overwhelmed, just walking into this little rinky-dink arcade and all the, the noise and all the lights, how much more a feeling of just being overwhelmed and mind-blown when I walk into the presence of the God who is light, who is the creator of me and of everything else in existence, who is love, who is being itself. Love, and when we come to God himself, we come into the presence of the one that we were made for. We come into the presence of the one who is more amazing and remarkable and sweeter and better and 
everything than anything else in all creation. This is the beauty of our redemption. When God invites us to proclaim his excellencies, again, he's not calling us out of this life of true joy where we're pursuing our own pleasures and fulfillments, but all of a sudden we stop that and now we start doing the boring right thing that we were always supposed to do, right? That's, that's what I thought the Christian faith was for all my childhood. That's why I rejected Jesus Christ for so many years because I thought, why would I want to leave behind what's really great about life, you know, and follow this God who just calls me to not lie, cheat, or steal, you know, what's, what's so exciting about that? But, beloved, when your eyes are opened, when you're called out of darkness and you're called into light, what happens is the eyes of your heart are suddenly made able to see. You are able to see the beauty, the glory of God, right? It's like, it's like you're walking by that arcade and all this noise and all these flashing lights are coming at you and for a long time you're just like, nope, I don't want to go in there. That's not interesting to me. All of a sudden, that noise, that smell, those flashing lights, and it's a lot better than an arcade, but all of that suddenly starts to hit you in such a way that you're drawn to it like a moth to a flame, and you suddenly realize that this God, this God, this is the one I was made for. This is the one who's going to fulfill me. This is the one whose excellencies I want to proclaim forever and ever, whose excellencies I want to search out more and more and more. We have a song that we sing. Jesus, I my cross have taken. And in that song are the lines, T'were not in grief to harm me while thy love is left to me. T'were not in joy to charm me were that joy unmixed with thee. You see, we believe this God is so good, so good, that he is actually better than the worst grief that we could possibly feel. There are so many faithful Christians in church history that have been even tortured and imprisoned for the sake of Christ that would say they knew more joy, more delight in that prison cell because God is so good. They knew more joy and more delight in that prison cell than they knew any time before when they were with their family and friends and the best of food. That having nothing with God is better than having everything and having no God. That is how great God is. And so when we come to God, when we come to proclaim the excellencies of God, is God being self-centered? Yes. He is saying, come and worship me. But in his being self-centered, he is giving us what we most need, what will make us most happy, what will satisfy us at the deepest level. And again, beloved, all of this is a gift. You do not deserve this God. I do not deserve this God. None of us deserves to see this God or to know this God. And yet, God came to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were walking in darkness, when we were not a people, when we were stumbling around, isolated in the dark, when we had not received any mercy and we had guilty consciences, we were in our filthy rags. God came to us and he said, you are mine. And so we look to him with eyes of faith. And so now every day of our lives, that's what we do. We do see the, the pleasures of sin over here, 
But we say, Lord, I don't want to go there. I don't want to look at those things. Help me to look to you. Help me to look to your brightness, to your goodness. And so we look over there. We look to God's brightness and goodness. And as we do that, and as we proclaim his excellencies in everything we do, we become a people who are full of joy, who are full of life, who are full of light. Not because everything about us has been affirmed. (laughs) Not because we're getting all the praise and glory. Exactly the opposite, right? Because now we are giving all the praise and all the glory to God. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, so much, Lord, for taking us out of darkness and calling us into your marvelous light. Lord, I pray that you would help us, even this very day, Lord, to feel more of the significance and the depth of the darkness that we were in. Help us to be more horrified of that darkness, even in this moment, God. Help us to be horrified of that darkness. And God, at the same time, as you do that, help to make us even more and more aware of your glorious light. Help us to see the before and the after, God. Help us to see what you have called us out of and what you have called us into. Lord, that we might be a people of praise. God, would you now receive our prayers of intercession and confession to you.